All right, so welcome to Crossroads, and uh, for our message today, we're going to be continuing uh, in the pre-series that we've been working our way through these several weeks, uh, looking at the way that the priesthood of the Old Testament shapes our expectations uh, for uh, Jesus when he comes in the New. Uh, You remember that when we arrive at the New Testament, um, Jesus is presented to us uh, bearing these three major roles at the same time. He's presented in the role of prophet, presented in the role of priest, and presented in the role of king. Uh, These are the roles that Jesus saw himself fulfilling, uh, and these are uh, the categories under which the people of his day kind of uh, understood what it was that he was doing and saying. Think, for example, about Jesus' final visit to Jerusalem for a minute. He rides into the city on a donkey, uh, just like King Solomon on his coronation day, uh, following the same route that Solomon followed, Uh, with people singing exactly the same song, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, that's Jesus in the role of king, isn't it? Uh, Then from there, Jesus enters the temple and he launches into this kind of radical housekeeping program, uh, overturning the money changers' tables, turning out all of the traders. Well, that's Jesus in the role of priest, isn't it? Uh, And then he sits down and he teaches his disciples about the imminent destruction of that temple. Uh, And he helps them understand how they should live in the light of the fact that uh, someday soon he's going to return. Well, that's Jesus in the role of prophet, isn't it? So you see all three of these roles just all nicely packaged together there in that one story. Uh, uh, These uh, roles, prophet, priest and king, all find their origin in the Old Testament. Uh, And if we're going to understand Jesus like he intended himself to be understood, uh, we need to grasp them and uh, reflect on them and know what it is that they mean. Time and again through his story, we find these three things coming to the surface together. So if we want to be people who understand him, uh, if we want to hear him right, we want to know how to obey him. If we want to be people who appreciate him better and better so we know uh, how to give him the worship that he deserves, uh, it's really important that we should know what these three roles mean. And that's the reason why we're spending our summer here looking at priesthood. But all that might make our choice of text for today a little bit weird, I guess, um, because um, we're not going to go to one of the outstanding examples of priesthood here this morning. Uh, we're not going to go to someone with terrific zeal like Phineas, like we saw last week, or uh, uh, someone who points us forward in some beautiful and mysterious way to Jesus like Melchizedek. No, today we're going to one of the grittiest priest stories and one of the most disappointing priests of the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, we're going into the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at a character called Eli. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world has Eli got, us, got to teach us about Jesus? Well, that's really the question that we're going to try and help, and we're going to try and answer this morning with God's help. Um, my hope is that just as we discovered when we studied the kings of the Old Testament together last year, uh, that we'll find this morning that sometimes the bad guys uh, in God's story teach us as much and sometimes even more uh, than the good guys. So uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, just a housekeeping note, the, you're going to find that there's a character in this story called Phineas. He's not the Phineas we had last week. Uh, okay? uh, Phineas and Hophni are the two sons of Eli, but all of this is a couple of hundred years after the events that we read about with Rod. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first 18 verses of that chapter. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. 
The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all that shouting in the Israelite camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines, be men. Or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. And Eli heard the outcry and asked, what's the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. And the army has suffered heavy losses. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was old and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. This is God's word. Do take a seat. And let's pray together now as we begin. Great God in heaven, we call out to you, um, praying that you would please be at work among us this morning uh, to open our eyes uh, to Jesus the way that uh, he intended to be seen. Father God, we pray that you would give us uh, the ability to uh, honour him and uh, the ability to see what it was that he was going for when he came and lived and died and rose among us. We pray that you would give us um, the ability to uh, work with this ancient and obscure text, this strange story that comes from so far in the past. And God, we pray that all your promises to us uh, about this great book might be fulfilled here, uh, that your spirit would be near us, and just as he caused it to be written, Uh, and preserve these words for our good, that he would be at work in every heart, that we might hear it and uh, make the connections that are here to be made, and that our lives might be changed as a result. And we ask it for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. 
Okay. So once again, it's another one of those Bible passages where we read it. It's like, you what? Like you're going to seriously preach on that? Um, but hopefully what we're going to find is that there's a lot going on here that can help us and warn us and point us forward uh, to things that are of relevance to our own lives. But before we get to that, uh, we've got to deal with the fact that dropping in here on 1 Samuel chapter 4 is a bit like kind of dropping in mid-season on an episode of a television drama series, isn't it? It's, um, there are all sorts of characters here that we probably don't know too well. Um, it's hard to place what we do know uh, within the context that we've just seen. Uh, hard to know even where this fits within the broader story. So to uh, help us with that, let me just kind of uh, get us started here with the highlights of the one Samuel DVD box set so far. Um, first of all, let's try and put a date on these events. Um, we can't be absolutely precise. This is very ancient history. Um, but uh, it's safe to say this story probably records events that took place about 1,100 years before the birth of Jesus, just over 3,000 years ago. So this is after Moses... Uh, And it's after Joshua and that whole Exodus story. Uh, It's also after Samson and Gideon and Ruth and that whole Judges story. But importantly, it's before Israel appoints a king. Uh, We still actually have about 40 years to go at this point uh, before we hear anything about Saul or David or any of their descendants. Uh, So at this point, the leader of Israel is a priest and his name is Eli. Eli gets introduced to us, actually, in the very first chapter of 1 Samuel. You might want to just flip there in your Bibles. Um, uh, There in the first chapter of the book, the author takes the opportunity to kind of set up the major theme of what's going to uh, follow for us. And it's kind of interesting how he does it. You see, as 1 Samuel goes on, we quickly discover that it's a book about war and power about heroes and villains. It's about God re-establishing his kingdom out of the wreckage of civil war. Uh, It's a book with a kind of massive landscape of political change. And yet the author of 1 Samuel prepares us for all that by telling us a very uh, interesting, uh, small-scale domestic story about two women who are about as far away from power and influence as you could possibly be. And he uses that story very deliberately Uh, to point us to where uh, the bigger narrative is going. The two women are Hannah and Peninnah, and they're married, uh, both of them, to the same guy, uh, a man called Elkanah. Now, many of us will know this story already. Uh, Peninnah has many children, and Hannah has none. And Peninnah abused Hannah because of it, reducing her to tears, making her feel about two inches tall. But then one year, their husband, Elkanah, leads them up to Shiloh. Shiloh is the place at the time where the tabernacle of God is pitched. So this is kind of religion HQ for Israel at the time, before Jerusalem has become any kind of a deal. Um, And there, Hannah brings all her sorrows before God. And she prays uh, that God will give her a son. And God answers. And God gives her a son called Samuel, who goes on to play uh, this pivotal role in this book that bears his name. Now, the really interesting part comes in chapter 2. If you just flip over there, uh, you'll see there how Hannah responded to this amazing intervention of God in her life. She sang a song, uh, not unlike the song that Mary sings in the New Testament uh, after she learns that she's going to be the mother of Jesus. Hannah says, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. And has them inherit a throne of honour. 
She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. And right there, we have the theme of the whole book of 1 Samuel. God raises up the humble, but he casts down the proud. He raises up Hannah, he casts down Peninnah. But that's only the overture for what's coming next. You see, as the story progresses, we find that God takes this son of this anonymous woman from an anonymous family in an anonymous town and he raises him up to lead the nation as their priest. And he casts down in the process uh, the man who has all the credentials of priesthood but none of the actual substance, Eli. But even that turns out to be merely a warm-up act uh, for what comes after that, the story of David, who God raises up to the kingship from his role as a, a shepherd boy, as the last and the least of eight brothers, but also how he brings down Saul, uh, the man who is uh, elevated to the kingship because he's the tallest and the strongest man in Israel, the one who has all the rights to the role. But all of that is a long way off at the start of our story here. And so as we read the first few chapters of the book, our minds are naturally drawn to the characters in front of us, particularly this enigmatic character, Eli. Because we uh, read here about this priest who has responsibility for leading God's people in 1 Samuel, uh, but the picture doesn't really seem to fit. This guy who we meet sitting on his chair at the doorpost of the Lord's house in chapter 1 doesn't seem to know anything about the God uh, that he is uh, supposed to be representing. And he doesn't seem to meet any of the criteria uh, for being God's priest other than coming from the right family. Remember, the priests of the Old Testament were supposed to have a governmental role, keeping, reciting, teaching the law of God, uh, making sure that God's writ ran. But with Eli, there's not much evidence of that at all. Uh, The Hannah and Peninnah story only gives us just a little hint, doesn't it? But it's striking that on Eli's watch, it's okay in Israel for the guys to have two wives. Later on in chapter 2, we get another little hint when Eli belatedly rebukes his wayward sons, Hophni and Phinehas, for grossly exploiting their privileges as uh, officials in the tabernacle. We'll think about the details of that whole incident in a minute. Uh, But for now, just thinking about Eli's governmental role, it's kind of striking that the way he rebukes his sons has little resemblance to anything you're going to actually find written in the Bible. Eli rightly understands that their offences are serious because they're sinning against God uh, and not just against men. But when you look at the underlying theology, uh, it seems to be really shaky. Eli tells his sons, they don't need to worry too much about hurting other people because God provides mediation for that kind of thing. It's only when God himself is offended that he gets really angry and then there's no possible way to be forgiven. Plausible? Maybe. If your idea of God comes mainly from the influence you get from the other Canaanite societies around you and what their gods are like. But that's not actually really what the God of the Bible is quite like, is it? Remember next that the priests of the Old Testament were supposed to have a housekeeping role. Looking after the fabric of the tabernacle. Making sure that its ceremonies were carried out according to God's commands. But once again here Eli just draws a blank. Chapter 2 tells us that under Eli's rule, the ceremonial sacrifice of animals for the sins of the Israelites degenerated into just this kind of grotesque performance that was all about getting maximum benefit to the priests at minimum effort. In Leviticus, 
we read that God lays out rules for uh, allowing certain portions of these sacrifices that were made to be used by the priests for food. Well, that makes sense. You know, this was their job, so they needed some kind of recompense. But by the time we reach 1 Samuel chapter 2, this whole thing is degenerated literally into this kind of bizarre lucky dip where all of the sacrificial uh, kind of meat is tossed into this great big pot and then the priest is allowed to come on with a long fork and snag whatever he can get on the end of it. Eli's sons take the whole thing one step further. 1 Samuel chapter 2 tells us that Hophni and Phinehas would send their servants to confront and threaten worshippers before they even reached the tabernacle, like while they're still out in the parking lot, forcing them to hand over the raw meat before even the fat had been offered on the altar. Follow that word fat through this story and you start to make some interesting connections. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and the offering that I prescribe for my dwelling, God says to Eli in chapter 2. Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Eli and his sons weren't taking care of the tabernacle of God, were they? They were taking care of themselves. Thank you very much. Remember next that the priests of the Old Testament were supposed to have a worship leading role, leading God's people in praise and confession, discerning the spiritual needs and, uh, uh, of those people and bringing those needs before the Lord to pray for them. But once again, that's just completely absent in Eli. When Hannah brings all her sorrows before God at the tabernacle in chapter 1, Eli just completely blanks her. He doesn't even know what she's doing when she's praying. It's as if he's never seen anything like it before in the whole of his life. Like the crowd who heard the apostles speaking in foreign languages uh, uh, in the early chapters of Acts at Pentecost. He accuses Hannah of being drunk. That's nice. The reason is just the same. Eli is a stranger uh, to the kind of living relationship with God that Hannah knows. In chapter 3, we come across the same thing in that famous story of the boy Samuel in uh, the Holy of Holies. One night, Samuel is woken by a voice calling his name. Samuel, here I am, he replies. And he runs off to Eli, thinking that the old priest is calling him. Now, we all know that that voice is actually the voice of God himself. And Eli should know that too, shouldn't he? Samuel is, after all, sleeping in the Holy of Holies. There isn't anybody else around. And yet this whole performance has to happen three times before Eli finally realises what it is that's going on. And then Eli tells Samuel to respond with these words, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You can't avoid the impression that those are words Eli hadn't said himself for a long time. Remember next that the priests of the Old Testament had a a guarding role, protecting the integrity of God's space. Adam had responsibility for keeping evil out of the Garden of Eden, didn't he? And when God instituted the priesthood under Aaron, uh, he passed on that same set of responsibilities to him and his sons. Aaron was charged with respecting and communicating the holiness of God. Do you remember the elaborate rituals that they had to go through on the Day of Atonement? making sacrifices for the people, uh, but also for themselves so that they would not die. But once again, that whole spirit of reverence and holy fear is just completely absent in Eli's story, isn't it? We've seen already how he turned a blind eye to his son's behavior, shaking down worshippers as they arrived at the tabernacle and kind of pouncing on their sacrifices for themselves. Judging by his waistline, he was an active beneficiary of that whole process. But that wasn't the half of it. 
In 1 Samuel 2.22, we learn that Hophni and Phinehas were even sleeping with women at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These guys were threatened, were treating the holiness of God with complete contempt. And yet Eli didn't do anything about it. He didn't even rebuke them until he started hearing reports coming back from the people that made him look bad. And finally, remember that the priests of the Old Testament were supposed to have a representative role. They had the task of standing for God before the people and of standing for the people before God. Their lives and their words were supposed to reflect God's character and God's priorities so that the people could actually understand God's character and God's priorities for themselves. Their ministry was supposed to be mediatorial, uh, making sacrifices on behalf of God's people, interceding on behalf of God's people. But again, none of that is visible in Eli. Eli seems to have shown no proactive interest in the needs of God's people whatsoever. His own needs were a far more pressing concern. Priesthood for Eli was a way to get a steady supply of good food. Priesthood was something to sit back, literally, and enjoy. Engaging with the spiritual lives of other people uh, was only ever an unwelcome distraction, as far as we can tell from his story. And as a consequence, Eli did an absolutely shocking job of representing God's character to his people. God is not some kind of passive slob who sits back on his chair, treating the needs of others as an irritant, and waiting for them to start complaining before he's forced reluctantly into action. God is not the kind of father who takes no interest in his son's behaviour until it becomes a public disgrace, uh, and then he tries ineptly to correct the uncorrectable. God is not the kind of God who doesn't even realise when his people are praying. But that's the kind of priest that Eli was. And that's the portrait that brings us to the beginning of the chapter that we read together. In chapter 4, Eli is presented to us as the leader of this nation, Israel. And Israel is in profound danger. The text tells us in verse 1 that the Israelite army was camped at this place, Ebenezer. And their deadly enemies, the Philistines, were camped at a place called Aphek. Now let's try and do this on the map here. Um, If you just refresh that, Tim. Woo! All right. So... um, this is where the Philistines kind of territory is. Um, Afek is here. So you can immediately see, immediately see the problem. Uh, the Philistines are deep in the land of Israel. Uh, they've crossed over uh, the land of Dan. They're already on the borders of Ephraim uh, by the time that this whole confrontation happens. So this is a critical moment. You know, the inheritance that Joshua and his generation fought so hard to win... Uh, is now under threat. Uh, The country is being invaded uh, by a very powerful uh, enemy. Uh, Israel, we're going to find out as we go through the story, is a Bronze Age society still. The Philistines are an Iron Age uh, society. So these guys have got technology on their hands. They have swords, they have chariots. These guys are profoundly dangerous. But where is Eli in all of this? Well, he's sitting at Shiloh. Let's just mark that on the map. Just here. Whoops. That's better. There's Shiloh. See, he's sitting back at Shiloh, um, leaving the decision-making to his oh-so-reliable sons. Uh, Our text tells us that the battle starts with an initial skirmish that leaves 4,000 Israelites dead. How did the leaders of Israel respond? Well, the answer that the author of 1 Samuel wants us to give is that they didn't respond like their forefathers did. 
You see, in the book of Joshua, when the Israelite army was defeated at Ai, do you remember how Joshua and his team reacted? They tore their clothes, they fell face down on the ground before the Lord, and they sought his wisdom about what to do next. But that isn't what Eli's sons do here. The sons of Eli don't stop to ask for advice. It doesn't occur to them that repentance might be in order. No, they send a message back to dad asking him to send them the ark. Why? Well, because in their minds, the ark is like some kind of battlefield nuclear weapon. They've heard the stories of the victories that the Israelites had won carrying the ark before them in the past. And now they wanted to be able to wield that kind of power themselves. They thought, oh, we'll really get these Philistines this time. What they failed to realize, however, uh, was that the Israelites experienced victory in the past when they carried the ark before them because they carried it as a symbol of submission to God. And now we're going to find out that it was submission to God and not carrying the ark that was really the decisive factor in all of those victories. Taking the ark the way that Eli's sons took it was actually profoundly stupid. You see, the ark was uh, the great symbol of God's presence among his people, wasn't it? Like a kind of mobile Mount Sinai. Uh, You know, just like the real Mount Sinai, they had to take really careful uh, action when they were around it. Did you notice how the ark is described in our text? Not just as the ark of the covenant, but as the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. It's really spelling it out, isn't it? The author wants us to feel the gravity and the holiness of this thing. That full title for the ark is only used two other times in the rest of the Bible. And both of those occasions stress God's prerogative to command and to meet and lead his people. But there's no meeting and no commanding sought from God here, is there? This is a story of men trying to use God, trying to bend God's power to their own ends. This is the story of what happens when Sinai on wheels gets picked up by two guys who have no respect for the existence or holiness of God whatsoever. It's heading for a road accident, isn't it? So in verses 5 to 9, we then get a telling little glimpse of uh, life in the two camps in Afek and Ebenezer just down the hill. The Israelites, of course, are elated when the ark arrives. They totally don't get it. They've got no idea of the power of the thing that they're messing with. And it's left to the Philistines to give us a slightly more thoughtful response. Uh, because they, uh, when they heard that the ark had arrived in the camp of the Israelites, they were terrified. I love the way that the, uh, the NIV renders this. Um, little plug for my favorite Bible here. Um, uh, they say, a God has come into the camp of the Israelites. Oh, no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. (laughs) Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. The Philistines at least take the God of Israel seriously, don't they? And we'll see in the next few verses that God gives the victory to the army that actually fears him. Verses 12 to 18 then bring us to the tragic end of the story when Eli hears the news. Back in Shiloh, Eli is sitting by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark, we read. Makes you wonder why he ever let his boys take it in the first place, doesn't it? If he knew in his heart that it wasn't a good idea. But sadly, that is the story of Eli's life. Eli is the guy who lets bad situations begin and develop because getting onto the front foot and actually providing some leadership to prevent them is too much hard work. He sits back and he watches fearfully as the consequences play out, but he fails to take responsibility for anticipating them, doing anything about them. So later that day, a messenger 
finally reaches him, having run the 12 miles from Ebenezer to Shiloh with a dispatch from the battlefield. It's a classic situation, isn't it? 30,000 Israelites, including Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, lie dead. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, has been captured by the Philistines. When the messenger mentions the Ark, the text tells us that Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man, and he was heavy. You better believe it. So what are we to make of this story now? More than 3,000 years after these events took place, does it have anything for us here in Grand Rapids today? It does seem very distant. Well, our review of this passage in the light of the earlier stories about Eli and 1 Samuel, I think allows us at least to see the first part of the answer. We could, of course, look at Eli and find all sorts of important moral lessons for our own lives today, couldn't we? He offers some very sober warnings to those of us who are fathers about the importance of proactively parenting our sons, doesn't he? He provides us all with a reminder, in case we need it, about the dangers of self-centeredness and irresponsibility. But whenever we're dealing with a Bible character who has a representative role like this, whether they're a prophet or a priest or a king, the primary application is always up and out to the representatives under whom we now stand. Representative characters like Eli point us first and foremost to Adam and to Jesus. You see, it's no mere flash in the pan that the priests of the Old Testament were given uh, the responsibility both to stand for God before his people and to stand for his people before God. God gave that responsibility to his priests and to his prophets and to his kings because standing under representatives is a fundamental feature of human nature. That's how God made us, not so much homo erectus as homo representus. In every society on the face of the earth, human beings appoint representatives to stand for them so that the decisions of one stand for the decisions of all and the achievements of one stand for the achievements of all. We all know that, don't we? In politics, we elect representatives to broker compromises and administer laws on our behalf. In fashion, we cling on to representatives who kind of model our look and uh, uh, emulate or kind of live out our aspirations for us. In sport, we choose representatives to carry our hopes and dreams on the pitch, don't we? And whether we realise it or not, that behaviour reflects this fundamental truth about our nature. No other creature does this. God created us to be represented before him. Just like we send our political representatives to the state house and our favourite teams out onto the sports field to compete on our behalf, every single one of us sends a representative to stand on our behalf in the presence of God. And that representative is either Adam or Jesus. Adam has the right to do it, of course, doesn't he? He's our natural choice. Uh, as the founding partner of humanity and sons, I guess he has the, uh, the right to decide the direction of the family business. And uh, I don't think any of us can really quibble uh, with the representation that he provides. I wonder whether you've ever asked yourself that question and kind of screened your own heart to see whether uh, this uh, picture actually fits. Adam decided that he would be better off without God, didn't he? 
Well, that's certainly a pattern that's very familiar to me. Adam thought little of the things that he'd been given by God and much of the things that he wished he'd been given. Again, sadly, I can't argue with the fact that that's where my heart naturally goes. Adam used the gifts that God gave him to rebel against God, and that's where my sinful heart takes me as well. Shaking off responsibility, biting the hand that feeds. Adam represents me scarily well. But in case we were in any doubt, after all, Adam only appears in four brief chapters of the Bible. It's not much to go on, is it? God has placed representative characters through the entire fabric of his story to flesh this thing out for us in detail. And so the question we really need to ask ourselves when we read a story like this is not first and foremost, what are the moral lessons that I can learn from Eli? Or how can I avoid making the mistakes that Eli made? Those things are important, of course. But unless something radical changes inside us, we will never drag ourselves out uh, from under this pattern that Eli uh, sets for us by our own effort. Now, the question we really need to ask ourselves is whether or not we see our own hearts represented in what this guy stands for. Because what this guy stands for is a picture of the one who stands for us. Eli fails to acknowledge the wisdom of God's government. He has no concept of the riches that are sitting under his nose in the book of the law or in the stories of God's faithfulness to Israel. He lets his people and he lets his sons go their own sweet, sweet way and then he shoots opinions from the hip when he should be shooting opinions from the Bible. That's his job. Friends, that's Adam. And that's the representative under whom we naturally stand. Eli fails to take care of God's interests. He doesn't even think God's interests are important. He's too busy creaming off the benefits of all God's undeserved blessings to stop and think about serving the one who gave them or to uh, uh, think about serving the people God gave them to him to serve. Friends, that's Adam. And that's the representative under whom each one of us naturally stands. Eli fails to lead his people in worship. He's spiritually unresponsive. He's blind to the movement of God's spirit in other people. He's deaf to the sound of God's voice. He doesn't lead his people in praise or confession that comes from the heart because his people have just become a means to an end for him. You know, a means to keeping good food on his table. Friends, that's Adam. And that's the representative under whom we naturally stand. Eli demonstrates no concern for guarding the holiness of God. God is not a present force in Eli's life at all, is he? Whatever he once knew about God is disappearing rapidly into the rearview mirror. And it's been a long time since it influenced his decisions in the present. Eli takes God's patience for granted. He hopes that God's response will be indefinitely delayed. Friends, that's Adam. And that's the representative under whom we naturally stand. And Eli fails to represent his people before God or God before his people. He doesn't take responsibility for the men and women that he's called to pastor. He doesn't call out to God for the forgiveness of their sins. The God he models is a God made in his own image. Selfish, passive, unconcerned. Friends, that's Adam. And that's the representative under whom we naturally stand. You see, unless something radical changes, we are bound up with the vision of humanity that Eli illustrates here. Eli shows us the team that we are cheering for. Eli shows us the representative that we have elected. 
Eli shows us how every man and woman here will be assessed in the end if we go to our graves with Adam standing at the head of the line in which we are lining up. Because we are homo representatives. And God sees the attitude of heart that produced all this bad fruit in every one of us. But that's not the end of the story. I said earlier on that our review of the first few chapters of 1 Samuel allows us to see one part of Eli's significance for us today. But if we spread the net a little wider now as we close, I think we can see the lessons of Eli in a somewhat different light. You may or may not know this, but the chapter we read today stands at an incredibly important, pivotal moment in the story of the whole Bible. Back in Genesis, after the fall, God promised Abraham that he was going to re-establish everything that was lost by Adam and Eve when they fell. God promised to redeem his kingdom, to buy back his special people so that they could live in his special place and experience the blessing of his presence with them and his rule over them and be a blessing to the world. I hope that's a familiar story to you now. And through all the many years uh, that followed that promise, the Bible shows us God in the business of keeping it. God's people were established and they became a great nation in Egypt. God redeemed them from slavery through the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. God blessed them with his presence, remember, in the pillar of uh, cloud and fire and also his presence kind of manifested on the lid of the ark as we saw when we were reading the story of Aaron. God blessed them with his rule through the, uh, the Ten Commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And finally, under Joshua, uh, God brought them into his special place, the land of Canaan. Um, and there they became a blessing to others, at least in a small way. Uh, we read the story of Rahab, the Canaanite, who's miraculously welcomed and included in the Israelite camp. The story of Ruth, the Merbetess, who's welcomed, actually both ladies welcomed into the genealogy of Jesus. The promise that God made to Abraham was fulfilled, but then the whole thing failed. In the book of Judges, we watch as the whole edifice of God's kingdom that's all been built so painstakingly is systematically destroyed. God's people are divided. God's place is infiltrated by neighboring tribes. God's rule is rejected. It's like a slow motion replay of the fall, isn't it? That's exactly how God intends it. And now in our text, we reach the lowest point of the whole story. Because the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God in the midst of his people, doesn't it? That fundamental piece of what God has always promised. And in 1 Samuel 4, the Ark is lost. Can you feel the weight of that in the light of the broader story? The last remaining piece of the promise that God made to Abraham, fulfilled over so many hundreds of years, so miraculously disappears here. Israel had just driven the God of the universe out of their national life. The seriousness of that is just dripping from the text that we read, isn't it? For all of his spiritual listlessness, even Eli understands that the loss of the ark is a supreme calamity. It's the loss of the ark, not the news about the death of his sons or the loss of his 30,000 troops that makes him fall off his chair in the end. And at the close of the chapter, we see the same thing played out in this little vignette that the author provides about Phineas's wife who goes into premature labor uh, and dies when she finds out what has happened on the battlefield at Ebenezer. And once again, it's not the death of her husband or her own death that dominates her last words. 
No, it's the loss of the ark. Why? Because for anyone with any interest in the promises that God had made, the loss of the ark would have seemed like the catastrophic end of the road. No way back. After everything that God had done for Israel, they just turned around and spat in his face, just like Adam and Eve had done, proving incidentally just how well represented they were by Adam and Eve all along, right? Just like us. And now the whole adventure was over. At least that's how it must have seemed. But that wasn't how things worked out. What should have happened here, of course, is that the ark should never have been seen again. Think about it. They've got this box, yay big, covered in solid gold. You know, even these days, victorious nations don't do a great job of returning that kind of thing to the enemies they conquered, do they? But in 1 Samuel 5, we find that the Philistines couldn't handle the ark. They put it in the temple of their great god, Dagon. And when they came back the following morning, they found the statue of Dagon smashed in pieces on the ground before the ark They moved it from city to city, but wherever they put it, the people in the local neighborhood started getting sick. You see, God was looking after himself. God didn't need his people to do it for him. God was quite capable of maintaining the continuity of his own story on his own. still is. In chapter 6, in desperation, the Philistines put the ark on an ox cart and they let the cows decide what to do with it. And lowing all the way, they carried it straight back to Israel. And a whole new era of Israel's history begins right there. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the presence of God left his people, didn't it? But in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the presence of God returns. And the whole process of rebuilding, uh, of fulfilling again the promises that God made to Abraham, all restarts. God reunites his divided people. He reestablishes their borders in this special place that he has planned for them. Uh, He establishes his rule over them through his kings and he fixes his presence among them, uh, ultimately in the temple built uh, by Solomon. You see, bringing Israel up out of Egypt and establishing them in Canaan wasn't the be-all and end-all of everything that God promised to do in the past. It wasn't as if the Exodus story and the settlement of the land under Joshua had exhausted the whole vision uh, that God gave to Abraham. In fact, not even the story of Israel's kings could do that. Fast forward 600 years from here, and you find Israel in exactly the same mess again. With Jerusalem destroyed, burned to the ground, God's presence departing from the temple. But even then, God showed his people that he was still focused on fulfilling the promises that he made to them so long ago. So why did all this happen? Well, it happened because God always knew that fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham would require more than just an amazing mediator like Moses or Joshua, more than just an amazing king like David or Solomon. For all their strengths, these guys uh, only end up really just kind of as illustrations of our inability to change our lives ourselves and recreate that uh, kind of Adam and Eve Eden experience. Uh, They just serve as illustrations of what we look like represented By Adam. God knew that to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to buy it all back, that promise, not just, uh, God knew that to uh, not just kind of foreshadow that, but actually to do it in history, that Adam would have to be replaced. 
A new representative for humanity would have to be provided. A new candidate would have to be elected on our behalf. A new team would have to take the field to carry our hopes. Something radically different needed to happen in human hearts to break the fit between Adam and us. Someone radically different would have to step onto the stage and snatch back the right to determine our future from the one to whom it naturally belongs. And that person is here in our story too. You see, just as Eli points us backwards to everything that Adam is, he also points us forwards to everything that Jesus will not be. And in that upside-down way, we actually get a really pretty good portrait here of the representative that God plans to use in the end to totally change the game of human experience. Remember, Eli failed to acknowledge the wisdom of God's government. God's new representative will not. God's new representative treasures and submits himself to the word that God has spoken. He leads his people with authentic, authoritative teaching, not with kind of trendy ideas that will all be out of fashion by the time we really need to depend on them, but with truths that we can live by, truths that we can die by, truths that we can pass on to our children, confident they'll still be paying dividends long after we're gone. Friends, that's Jesus. Isn't that the kind of representative you really want to stand under? Though Eli failed to take care of God's interests, God's new representative will not. God's new representative puts the interests of God and the interests of those that God called him to serve above his own, even to the point of dying for them. God's new representative values goodness, kindness, faithfulness, justice, and he cares about their preservation. Friends, that's Jesus. Isn't that the kind of representative you really want to stand under? Though Eli failed to lead his people in worship, God's new representative will not. God's new representative calls us to our knees, seeking God's honour, and then to our feet, seeking the extension of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He knows our hearts. He sees our deepest needs. He knows our weaknesses, and his response to them is all compassion. Friends, that's Jesus. Isn't that the kind of representative you really want to stand under? Though Eli failed to guard God's holiness and purity, God's new representative will not. He values the holiness and purity of God so highly that he chose to come into our world to find us ahead of some kind of fudge that would just let us back into God's presence with none of our problems resolved. God's new representative paid the penalty of exclusion from God's presence that we deserved so that we could be included. Friends, that's Jesus. Isn't that the kind of representative you really want to stand under? And though Eli failed to represent his people before God or God before his people, God's new representative will not. In fact, quite the reverse. God's new representative reveals God to us with such clarity that the Bible tells us even the prophets of the Old Testament who saw all sorts of extraordinary stuff long to see the things that we now see and read about in our Bibles. He represents us before the Father with individual concern and with a commitment to intercede for each one of us individually. Jesus isn't just sitting back on a chair somewhere waiting to see what will happen in your life. He's proactive, decisive, gracious, selfless. Isn't that the kind of representative under which you want to stand? 
Now, clearly we don't deserve this. Clearly this isn't strictly natural, is it? Unless something radical changes, we are bound up with the vision of humanity that Eli shows us in our text. The vision of humanity that's headed by Adam. But the Bible wants us to understand something radical has changed. If we trust him, if we surrender to him, if we acknowledge our need of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, Jesus can become the team that we're cheering for. Jesus can become the representative that we have elected. And if we go to our, as we go to, when we go to our graves, Jesus will be the one standing at the head of the line in which we ourselves are standing, raising us up to an eternity of joy if we trust him. Because we are homo representus. And God's plan for history is that under his representation, our hearts might be so changed and our lives so altered that we might even begin to look like we belong in the ranks of those who bear his name. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, thank you for your amazing, astonishing plan that knowing all of this in us, uh, seeing the Eli in us, knowing exactly that this is uh, what we are inside, each of us with our own variety of it, but each of us nonetheless accurately represented by it, that despite that, that you would act to change our destiny and that you would make another way, that you would open up another door, that you would make it possible for us to just be somehow detached from this whole path that just leads us down the line that Adam walked himself, that we might come under a different head, that we might be uh, stood for by a different person, that uh, perfection and goodness and kindness and self-sacrifice might be the banner under which we could march if only we will trust him. Jesus, we know as well that the cost of that was you actually being treated like you had been the man that we just read about. That you were cast out, that you were punished, that you were uh, divorced from the presence of your father by taking onto yourself and into yourself uh, the guilt for the kind of life that we just saw laid out in front of us. And so I pray, God, that you would teach each of us profound thankfulness, but also just profound realism. There is no contest between these two men who stand ahead of us, each of them asking whether we will march behind them. Jesus, enable us to thankfully and humbly march behind you. communion tables are open today great opportunity for you to say who's going to carry the flag of your life that's kind of what Jesus laid out to his disciples there, he's saying to them internalise it, make me mine, make me yours if you want to affirm that then go ahead and take communion this morning because there's so many of you in here as we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, we're going to ask you to come to the communion tables down these three middle aisles, exit to the sides. And-